When I was 41 years old, been married to my wife Sarah for about 12 years, God used a character in a book to reveal to me that in all my years as a Catholic, that even though I knew who Jesus was, I did not have a personal relationship with him. That all changed on Thanksgiving Day, 1999. And in the book, the gospel is very clearly laid out. I believed it, and I told Jesus, you bought me. I'm all yours. I give you my life. I'm married, and I have two sons. I give them to you, too. And I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want. I'll do it whenever you want me to. Just let me know. And immediately, and as clearly as if he had spoken out loud, missions. And that began kind of a roller coaster ride with my wife, Sarah. Sometimes she seemed to be fully on board. Other times, well, not so much. And at the very lowest part of the journey, Sarah told me one night, you go ahead and go. You're feeling called, I'm not. I'll stay here with the boys. I mean, really? Was God really at work here? Because I wasn't seeing too much evidence of it at the time. Have you experienced a time like that? Desperate to see God work? And if you squint your eyes, you might see a little something, but you're just not sure about it? Have you been there? Maybe your experience was like mine, and there was a lack of fulfillment of what was a very clear call on your life. Or maybe yours is um, the fact that you have concern about a loved one, and they've not trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation. You've been praying to God for years that he would work in them. Or maybe for you, it's the experience of emotional pain, whether it comes from disappointment or shame or rejection, and you've been pleading with God to work. God's power, is he using it? Because you're just not seeing much evidence of it. Why should you have hope? Hope that you will see God at work. Bring about his abundant life in your life? Well, the prophet Ezekiel has an answer for us. We'll find that in chapter 47. So please join me in Ezekiel chapter 47. And we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. Our text today, our main text, is from Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. And first, we'll see the power Second, we will look at the underlying theology. And third, we will consider an appropriate response. The power, the theology, and one appropriate response. And the first thing I want you to notice is that God's life-giving power is limitless. There are no limits to it. And even though it is limitless, it may not be very noticeable at first. Let's take a look. Ezekiel 47, we'll start with the first two verses. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, that's the um, doorway to the temple, and behold, water is flowing from under the threshold of the house or the temple toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water is flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. So now Ezekiel and the, this other guy are outside the wall of Jerusalem. And behold, water was trickling from 
the south side. So the unnamed man here is an angel who's been guiding Ezekiel through a vision that God has given to Ezekiel, a vision about the future Jerusalem temple, what it will look like, how it will function during the millennium in the end times. And now in chapter 47, the the guide is going to lead Ezekiel through another part of the vision, and it was an amazing sight. In verse 1, Ezekiel said that that he, that angel, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, look, water was coming over the threshold of the temple. It was coming from the very presence of God, flowing by the south side of the altar. And he described the flow of the water in a certain way. He used the word that water makes as you're just kind of slowly pouring it out of a small flask. He said it was trickling. And he couldn't see where the stream was going, and so the angel, in verse 2, led him outside the walls of Jerusalem so he could see where this went. And then the angel kept leading Ezekiel. Look at verses 3 through 5. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the loins or the the waist. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, means I couldn't get across it. For the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a water that could not be forded. Now, a thousand cubits, that's about a third of a mile or so. Now, are you getting the picture here? The angel is leading Ezekiel outside the walls of Jerusalem. They're following this trickling stream. They go about a third of the mile, and the water's up to the ankles. They go another third of a mile, it's up to the knees. They go another third of a mile, it's up to the waist. And then they go another third of the mile, and it's become a raging river so powerful that no one could get across it. But the tour is not over. Because when you can see God's power like that, you can see that its ability to produce new life, an abundant life, there's no limits to that either. Let's take a look. Verses 6 through 12. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region, go down into the Arabah, then they go toward the sea, that would be the Dead Sea, be made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. That's beside the, the shores of the Dead Sea. From Engedi to Enigleim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets, and their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, very many of the fish and kinds of fish. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. 
They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary in the temple, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So in verse 6, this angel guide made sure Ezekiel saw all of this. Right? He asked, Son of man, have you seen this? As if the flowing water, changing from that trickling stream to the raging river, was not amazing enough, the angel didn't want um, Ezekiel to be so focused on the water, he missed what the water was doing. And again, Ezekiel was amazed at what he saw. In verse 7, he used that word, behold, again. Right, he's led back to the water by the angel guy, and he said to himself, Behold, look at that. On the banks of the rivers where there were very many trees on both sides. You see, while it's normal for a river to, provo- to produce life, to provide the uh, water necessary to grow trees, what Ezekiel saw was beyond belief. And then at the end of verse 8, Um, we start to get a picture of Ezekiel learning about this river, which disappeared over the horizon, goes a few miles to empty into the Dead Sea, and it's doing some amazing things. At the end of verse 8, the water from the river, which flowed from God's presence in the sanctuary in the temple, it transformed the Dead Sea into fresh water, salt water into fresh water. Now, that's amazing. The Dead Sea is at least five times saltier than the ocean. You can't drink it. It can't support life, hence the name the Dead Sea. But when the river coming from the temple went into it, it got transformed into fresh water. And the word for fresh here, it literally means um, to be healed or to be saved. And then in verse 9, we see evidence of the healing of the Dead Sea because it no longer caused death. Instead, it produced new and abundant life. Do you see that? And then in verse 10, in fact, there'll be so many fish there that fishermen will stand all around the shores fishing like crazy. They get all this abundant new fish life out of there. And then in verse 12, Ezekiel gave some extra details about the trees that were growing so abundantly along the banks of the river. Right? He said there are all kinds of trees. And they'll be so full of life that they will be continually fruitful every month and forever. Continually providing fruit for nourishment and then leaves for healing. And that's how the vision ends. Right? Ezekiel and his readers are left marveling at the life-giving power of this river that comes from God's presence. But whose power and whose abundant, amazing life was not visible to Ezekiel to start with. This was not just a vision, it was a prophecy. And like so many prophecies that we see in the Bible, it gets fulfilled in stages. There's kind of the soon time, the near fulfillment, and then there's the ultimate or more distant future fulfillment. So for the near one, let's take a quick look at John chapter 7. The Gospel according to John chapter 7, we'll look at verses 37 through 39. We'll see the near fulfillment in John chapter 7, 37 through 39. And in the near fulfillment, 
God's limitless power is going to work in and through believers. Let's, let's take a peek. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, in other words, at some time in the future, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In verse 37, that that feast that's taking place here, it's a week-long celebration called the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. And so these verses took place on the last day of that feast. It was a week-long celebration to commemorate what God had done when he saved his people from bondage in Egypt. In other words, the Exodus event. And during that, there is this water ritual that's performed by um, the high priest. It was a symbol of God's provision. And so in verse 37, with that water in mind, Jesus stood up and loudly proclaimed, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus said that from every believer will flow rivers of living water. Multiple rivers of living water flowing out from every single believer. Now, it sounds a little weird, I know. And I think John's audience was probably a little confused too. And so John explained in verse 39 what Jesus meant. Right? He said that Jesus was speaking about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. It would happen later because it wouldn't be till Pentecost that God would send his Spirit to be with all believers. So this was the near fulfillment, taking place during the church age from Pentecost up through at least today. And every believer is given the Holy Spirit as part of their salvation. The Holy Spirit is given to Um, be with them who has the limitless life-giving power of God and then Jesus said that that power is going to go out from them so that's the near fulfillment the far fulfillment let's look at the last book of the Bible Revelation chapter 22 this will be the ultimate fulfillment Revelation chapter 22 we'll look at verses 1 through 5 The ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy is Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And Revelation, like the gospel we just looked at, was also written by the Apostle John. And in the ultimate fulfillment, God's limitless power ensures abundant life forever. Let's take a look. Starting in verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. 
This is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth that God gave to the apostle John. Remember, Jace preached about this last week from the previous chapter. And in verses 1 and 2, we saw that just like Ezekiel had a guide, an angel guiding him through his vision, John has an angel guiding him through this vision as well. And back in Ezekiel's vision, remember that water came from somewhere in the sanctuary, somewhere in God's presence, but John here specifically sees the river coming from the very throne of God, of God the Father and of God the Son, who is the Lamb of God. And in verse 2, again, reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision, there is a, a focus on the powerful effects of the water. The tree growing along the banks of the river. It's not just an old fruit tree, but it's the tree of life. Right? It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. The river resulting in abundant fruitfulness all year round, every month, forever and ever. Fruit for eating and leaves for healing. Okay, wait a minute. If part of the 10% remember from Jesus' sermon last week is that there's not going to be any suffering, there's not going to be death, then what's with the healing part? Well, what you need to know is that the word for healing used here Whenever it's used in the New Testament, it never means healing in a medical sense like we think of it. It's healing in what we'll think of as maybe a holistic sense, just kind of a, uh, the well-being, every which way you can think about it. So what John has in mind here is that God is going to provide this tree of life for all believers to partake of, to provide well-being in every which way, physical, spiritual, emotional, uh, every way that you can think of. It's a picture of the abundant life that God is going to provide his people. And then in verse 3, we see that God's presence, in particular his ruling presence, will ensure that all aspects of his creation, all parts of his creation, all aspects of the curse, the curse that he, will, that he had put on creation because of Adam's sin, that it will all be gone. Right? Look at verse 3 again. There will no longer be any curse. No more effects of curse on humankind. No more effects of the curse on creation. All of it, gone. And forever. And then notice in verse 3 also that the throne of God and of the Lamb, they'll be in the city. Well, that's a picture of the King of Kings on his throne. And guess what? When you're in the King's kingdom, what happens? The King rules. He sets the rules. Everything's done his way. Then verses 4 and 5, we see that God's presence will also ensure the perfection of kingdom living for his people forever. Right? In verse 4, his bondservants, every believer will see God's face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, will this be a literal stamp? Probably not. But to say that God's name is stamped on your forehead means that everyone who looks at you, it will be crystal clear to them that you have his very character, that you look so much like him, you're imaging perfectly that you are just um, like him. It's like your forehead has been stamped with his name. And then in verse 5, all believers will see the full glory of God all the time. 
God's glory, the light of his Shekinah is going to illuminate the new, the new earth. No need for sunlight or moonlight or stars or light bulbs because the light of his Shekinah is going to provide all the light for the new heavens, the new earth. And then all believers, described back in verse 3 as bondservants of God, in verse 5, it said that they will reign with God forever and ever. Perfection of the abundant life, perfection of kingdom living forever. What we see in the power, the limitless life-giving power of God. So let's take a look at the underlying theology. Remember, this was a vision of a prophecy that God gave to um, Ezekiel. And so what did God want to tell his people through this vision? Well, the river that no one could swim across, it was a picture of God's power having no limitations. Right? And he has so much power that no one and nothing can stop him from doing what he's doing. The astounding number of trees that were growing up along the banks of the river, being continually and forever fruitful, that's a, a picture of God's providing life-giving abundance. The fish that are now in the healed Dead Sea, being as great a provision as we see in the uh, Mediterranean. That's a picture of God providing abundant life, even from something that's been dead. Hmm. Life from what's been dead. That's a picture of God's salvation. We've got those, those leaves for, <clears throat> for healing and restoration. We've got this for people and for all of creation. And the picture of this unstoppable river that you can't get across. That's a picture of how great God's power is. That God can do what he has promised. I mean, what a reason to have hope. But don't forget a small but very important detail. Right? Remember that before Ezekiel saw this powerful river and the abundant life that it could produce, what did he see? A small trickling stream, barely enough to pay attention to, not doing much at the time. So often that's the way it is, isn't it? God is at work. His plan to bring about abundant life for his people, being accomplished by his unstoppable power, God can see what's going on. He knows what he's doing, but God's people, sometimes all we see is a small, trickling stream. But there's reason to hope, because God has a plan. He is at work to provide this abundant life, and nothing and no one can stop him. But remember, it's not just a vision. It was a prophecy. And we saw the the nearer time, the soon fulfillment in those verses from John chapter 7. And what they described was a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. And the partial fulfillment is a spiritual fulfillment, right? Remember, Jesus said that if anyone thirsts, if they are thirsty for the salvation that God provides, all they have to do is come to him and believe in him, and then they will receive the Holy Spirit to indwell them. They'll have God Himself 
with his unstoppable power right there with him in such an intimate relationship that we talk about it like he's living on the inside. And they will have been raised from what was dead, spiritually dead because of their sins, to new life. And then flowing out of them, remember, the rivers of water. The Holy Spirit flowing out of them to others as they share the good news of their salvation. And then those people who have heard can respond and be changed from death into life. And they can tell others and on and on and on. And the rivers keep going. And then we saw the ultimate fulfillment in Revelation chapter 22. Not just spiritual, but now it's a physical fulfillment. At the climax of history, God is going to remove the effects of the curse, not only just from human beings, but also from the rest of um, the earth, from all of creation. And we'll live perfectly like we were supposed to. Remember God in Genesis chapter 1 put us on earth to image him and to work in his place to rule over creation. And now we're going to rule with God perfectly and forever. That is the reason for hope. And it is hope that is certain, hope that is guaranteed because it's up to God and his unstoppable power. And that's the destiny of every believer, whether it's a believer who came before us, it's a believer right now like you and me, or it's a believer who's not yet a believer. But it's a destiny that is only for believers. In other words, it's a destiny only for those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so if you've never done that, whether you're here in this room now or you're watching us online, I invite you to do so to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty, the penalty that you yourself deserve to pay. And then on the third day, he rose again to new life. And he offers to you that new life today. You can have it today and know that you will be living with him forever. So trust him to save you and make you right with God. Well, we've seen the, the power We've looked at the underlying theology. Now that you know the truth about the reason for hope, how should you respond? Well, I suggest that you remember, that you remember the power of God, the one who guarantees your destiny. When we left Sarah's and my roller coaster missions journey, Sarah had told me, you're feeling called on, not feeling it, you go ahead and go. I'll stay here with the boys. I wasn't seeing much evidence of God's power at work at that time, and so I had a choice to make. I had to choose either hope or despair. Choose to trust God or trust what my eyes could see. I chose God, and I chose hope, and I could do that because I remembered God's power the power of our sovereign God, the the God who controls history, the God who guarantees the end of the story, the God who guarantees the end of my story. And so I trusted him. And over the course of a few months, God did indeed work on Sarah's heart, giving her a very clear call to missions. And so we um, transitioned to heading overseas, and the two years or so it took to get to that point. 
Um, took about a year to raise support, financial and prayer support. Sold our house, sold a bunch of our stuff. Um, some missions, missionary training, then 10 months in France to learn French. And then we moved to Chad. And experienced the hardship of living in a less than third world country. And after only a few months, God called us out of missions. Not long term like we had planned, but only about six months or so. Wow. After all we'd been through to get there, was God's power still at work? Well, in order to have hope, Sarah and I had to remember the power of God, the one who guarantees our destiny. Because like Ezekiel, from where we stood at the time, we were seeing just a little trickling of God's power at work. But also like Ezekiel, God blessed us with being able to see what he was up to. He allowed us to see beyond the horizon to see some of the results of his power at work as his life-giving power just kind of flowed over the landscape of our mission's journey. I'm going to share with you just a few of the highlights of what he was up to. We did see God give new life to the dead as we shared our testimony and unbelievers heard it. God used that to draw people to faith in his son, Jesus. Even Christians responded to the same testimony by re-examining their lives and they became more faithful followers of Jesus. When we came back to the U.S., we moved to Indiana. We were only there for a year before we moved again, but that short time in Indiana, God brought some pretty big blessings uh, to us. One was our oldest son, Matthew, was able to go to Purdue. And even though we moved before the first day of class, he was able to keep in-state tuition costs all the way through college, and that was undergraduate and graduate school. The church in Indiana that we went to, they helped supply um, summer workers to a Christian camp up in Michigan. Matthew went, met his future wife, and they have two sons of their own, our grandsons. And then we moved to Wisconsin because God just dropped this fantastic job on my lap that I couldn't refuse. And after being there for a few years, God um, led me to stop my medical practice come here to Dallas to go to DTS, and then become the care pastor here at Grace. And God is um, blessing people through this ministry like crazy. So that barely trickling stream did indeed become a powerful, life-giving river. Now, your story might always end up like that. You may not always be blessed by God to see a lot of what he is doing as he is doing it. And I'll say, our stories aren't always like that either. Right? Sometimes all we see is what you see. Just a little trickle of God's power at work. But the fact remains, God is the reason for that we can have hope. His love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his life-giving power we can trust him, and we can have hope. I mean, after all, he is the one who guarantees our destiny. So how should you respond to what God has been saying through Ezekiel's prophecy? Remember, remember the power of God, the one who guarantees your destiny. 
And one way to do that, to prepare yourself when you need to see God, it's power at work, when you desperately need to see the hope of, of God doing something, one way you can do that is to write a truth on a post-it note or an index card like this. In your worship guide, under the one thing, I've written out what that one truth should be. God's power guarantees my destiny. God's power guarantees my destiny. And then tape it to your bathroom mirror. Put it on the fridge. Use it as a bookmark in your Bible. Tape it to the remote control for your teepee. Put it wherever you will see it and read it every day. And day by day, as you go over this truth, it's like you're putting it into your pocket or your purse in case you need it later on. Then when you do need it, voila, there it is, ready for you to use. So you put it in your pocket, ready for you to use. Some of you need that truth today, that reason for hope today. Some of you, no, you don't. But don't worry, you will need it later on. So get it prepared. God's power guarantees my destiny. So we've seen the power, that limitless life-giving power of God. We've looked at the theology that our reason for hope is the abundant resurrection life, and then God is powerfully at work to make it happen for us. My challenge, your one thing for this week, is to remember the power of God, the one who guarantees your destiny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for what you do. Thank you for your wisdom, your faithfulness, your goodness, your love, for having revealed to us the end of the story, and that you have the limitless, life-giving power to make sure it happens that way. But most of all, we thank you for your beloved Son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus, and what a gift it is you give when you give us our destiny of being with him forever. Thank you for the reason for our hope, and that our hope is a certainty. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.